Welcome to COVID-19 and the EU, the podcast where we look at how the EU is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and look to the future for EU citizens living in the era of COVID-19 in the context of travel, health, vaccines and other areas that affect our lives. In this episode, I spoke to Noelle O'Connell, who is the CEO of European Movement Ireland. We discuss orders of merit in France, Ireland's place in the EU, and EU responses to COVID-19. So my guest on the podcast is Noelle O'Connell, who is the CEO of the European Movement Ireland. Noelle is a former business development training, education and public affairs consultant, and in 2017 was awarded the Order of Merit, France's second highest national order for public service between Ireland and France. That's very uh, impressive. I don't think I've ever met anyone, Noel, who's been given an order of merit from France before. Um, I, 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 I was going to ask about European movement Ireland first, but maybe uh, you just give us a quick anecdote on what it was like to receive uh, such an award from France. Oh, no, it was a, it was a tremendous honour. Uh, Paul, I was uh, uh, very humbled, quite frankly. Um, So it's their second highest civilian honour and it was kind of awarded just in terms of public service between, due to my work of promoting connections and links, I guess, between Ireland and France and also the work that that we do on on a European level. So I see it very much as a reflection of uh, the work that, or, you know, the organization does here in, in European Movement Ireland. And I also sit as a voluntary uh, director on the board of uh, Alliance Française, the largest French language cultural training language institute here in Ireland. So I sit on that board and it was, no, it was a lovely, uh, it was a lovely and, and very humbling honor, a very, very, I get, I get a big fancy, uh, v- fancy medal um, that, uh, that, uh, that apparently uh, you, 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 uh, you, you, you wear on very formal uh, state occasions and uh, it was just very humbling to, to be awarded it. Sadly, I did inquire as to whether it came with any perks like, uh, you know, Six Nations rugby tickets for life <laughs> for Irish French matches. Yeah. But the ambassador advised me that sadly that was not the case. What about a lifetime supply of um, French wine or or cheese? (laughs) Oh, would that that were the case? Uh, No, unfortunately, that that, uh, I I haven't been notified. Actually, that's a good point. Maybe I'll get in touch with them. Yeah, you should inquire about that. Actually, I don't know if you're aware, but Near FM broadcasts Radio France International every morning from eight to nine. Both Irish and people from France who, who live here listening to that in the morning time. Fantastic, fantastic. No, that's that's great to see. And it's it's so important that we in Ireland try and upskill and develop our foreign language skills. It's it's vital. And for for those uh, Irish uh, graduates and Irish job seekers looking to get a job in the different EU institutions or more broadly, just, you know, even 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 abroad in in France or be it in Brussels, the importance of having foreign language competency and skills is absolutely vital and it's something quite honestly that we are we're not the best at here I think we're we're prone to be somewhat lackadaisical because everyone speaks English it's kind of the lingua franca at this stage but let's not forget as well huge opportunities in the different EU institutions and really well-paying to be blunt incredibly well-paying great opportunities 
for Irish language speakers as well. So that's something that we in European Movement Ireland are really keen on encouraging graduates, uh, job seekers, people with language skills to look and see what opportunities are out there because, you know, Irish people are really highly thought of and regarded um, um, in Brussels, in the different institutions, the agencies, the bodies. Um, So a super opportunity. And especially, sadly, if there is to be an upside post-Brexit, it makes us even more attractive as well, because we have, you know, we have the native English speaking ability, but also a few uh, extra foreign languages, and particularly if you, our own native language of Irish, the, the sky's the limit. You know, like you said, uh, it's easy to fall back on English because everybody speaks it, but, um, you know, pushing ourselves a little bit more and learning French or Spanish or German or whatever it is. But just for people who are not aware, can you just give us a, a quick summary of what is European Movement Ireland? Sure. We are essentially European Movement Ireland, founded in 1954. So we're the oldest, uh, longest established not-for-profit organization that's voluntary, that's a membership-based association that has been working for over 65, 66 years to develop the connection between Ireland and Europe. So basically, we see ourselves very much, although geographically at the the periphery of Europe, we see ourselves very much at, at the heart of Europe and that bridge, uh, transatlantic bridge between Ireland, uh, uh, Ireland, Europe and the US. And how we work on connecting Ireland and, and Europe and our relationship with the EU and the institutions is through a variety of uh, communications, outreach, engagement, uh, education programs, campaigns, advocacy and membership services. So it's as varied as working with the Irish government, with the Department of Foreign Affairs on the whole conference and conversation on the future of Europe. What type of a European Union do we want and how do we as people in Ireland, how do we want to shape and influence that to um, as varied as as, uh, being the national implementation body for the Blue Star program, which is a primary school initiative And out of the plus 3,000 primary schools in the country, over 1,000 of them have or are taking part where 100,000 primary school children are learning about Ireland and about Europe in a really creative curriculum friendly manner. And given how multicultural and how multi-ethnic our communities are now, um, we have children of different nationalities. So they're able to bring that element of how their grandparents in, in Poland uh, celebrate Christmas. Um, they're able to do Skype twinning with schools in Latvia. Um, they're doing stamp collections with, with uh, their school's counterparts in Spain. So it's fantastic. Um, it's brilliant. So, so those are some of the things. And we also then, you know, we, we work on, on some of the big, you know, policy issues such as, um, you know, in terms of Brexit, I sit on the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, the department's Brexit stakeholder forum, where we work very closely with industry and uh, with associations and trade bodies to make sure that we as a country and our members and our stakeholders and all of us as people start, sadly, to to really get prepared for what's coming down the track in less than 50 days. And I, you know, and I think there's, I'm really worried and concerned, like even very basic thing 
we used to go around the country talking to communities and doing um, debates and town hall dialogues. And the, one of the most recent ones that we did in uh, was up in Cavan and Letterkenny, actually. And to get from our office up there, we kind of crossed the border various times, right? And our phones went in and out of, you know, the, the switch to the data roaming when we uh, w- went into the north. Like as of the 1st of January, you know, the telcos providers in Northern Ireland are under no uh, obligation to keep that EU data roam at home going. So very basic things like that is, is really the changes that are coming down the track in 2021 are are, are very, uh, very real and very imminent. Uh, and obviously Brexit isn't the only um, imminent crisis that faces us. We have COVID-19 and the pandemic that's obviously going since, since March time throughout the world, but obviously it affects Ireland, it affects Europe and this podcast, I guess, has been looking at how the the crisis has affected different people and different uh, elements, and and how the EU has responded to that. And I've I've talked to people like Claire Daly about how it's affected the work of the Parliament uh, and so on. And so, can I just get an idea, like how how has it impacted the work of EMI, and how have you adapted to that? Yeah, sure. I think was it is it is it Yates that said all has changed, changed utterly. <laughs> It's been very interesting, Paul, to be honest with you, with with either remarkable foresight. We I was recording, actually, I'll tell you a funny story. I was recording, would you believe, a podcast with Lord David Putnam, who, whom you, you, your listeners might be aware of. And it was the most surreal experience, right? Because I've never recorded a podcast with somebody who behind him were just a row of Oscars that he's won for his various films and BAFTAs. <laughs> So I, knew, I, I found it very disconcerting uh, chatting away to David on that. So we did, we did good, um, we did good giggle about that from his home in uh, beautiful Skibbereen in in the Republic of West Cork. Um, but in terms of, of of that, we so we were, I was recording that, and that was the time I think that um, that the that Leo Varadkar then made his announcement. And that Friday, we had scheduled in a, a trial to work from home. And, uh, and I remember I remember doing a staff meeting with all, all of us. We, we, were, we were all um, physically in the office. And I remember doing a staff meeting saying to people, OK, folks, bring home, you know, laptops, bring like your, your stationery, bring, bring paper, bring the, bring the notebooks, um, because I don't know when we'll all be back in the office again. And that was the 12th of March. And I, I, I don't think, Paul, I believed it myself, if that makes sense. You know, I think I said it, but I don't know. Did I really think it? I thought, you know, maybe in the summer we might we might start doing the hybrid version coming back. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how we started. Um, and in terms of our work, it's it's um, it's been it's it's been a challenge, right? I'm sure it's been the same for you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a big uh, there was a big learning curve um, and, and also support for people who wanted to go from broadcasting in the studios but not being able to access them and then wanting to continue broadcasting. So being able to equip people with the necessary, maybe if it's hardware, microphones or software, continue to do that. So there was a huge logistical challenge in getting all of our content 
matter with live or recording studios then suddenly it's been recorded at home and broadcast from home so like like lots of other industries you know or lots of other organizations it would have been a challenge but also a good learning curve as well I mean, I, I think we're, you know, copy and paste exactly what, what you said. Uh, for us organizationally, there were a number of, of challenges and opportunities in terms of team and colleagues uh, working from home. And we have a really geographically diverse team. So, you know, so we had colleagues who had to decide would they, you know, would they go, you know, back home? And a lot of people moved down home because they weren't obviously working in the office. And we had to make sure that, that staff were supported and set up and infrastructure and IT and broadband and everything was, was sufficient. And also that we had to introduce practices to enable us to continue to collaborate and, and creatively brainstorm. We've a, we've a fantastic team. I'm really, really proud of our organization. And there's a, there's a, there's a great culture. People really go that extra mile. And you know yourself the importance of the water cooler conversations in, in, in helping bring teams together and in also driving the workload and the outputs of the organization. So how do you replicate that that creative innovation, that, that spark, that spontaneity that arises when colleagues are together physically in the same building? So replicating that virtually was something uh, that, that we had to very quickly get up to speed. And then in addition to that, we had a hugely ambitious work program. I mean, the month of March alone, I was meant to be in Brussels. Um, we were meant to be doing a Brussels connection event for the new Irish stagiaires who had arrived into the city with the uh, with the perm rep. I was meant to be in Westminster having a series of meetings, and I was uh, due to speak at a global conference in Bratislava and share how Ireland has done the future of Europe uh, participatory uh dialogues all that sort of stuff so i had a really exciting uh march and april all planned out and that that all stopped and we also had to transition very quickly to do all our physical events uh in the online world so you know for to give a case in point only yesterday we uh we did an event with minister simon coveney and the german ambassador to ireland on looking at Ireland and Germany's perspectives on a post-Brexit Europe, uh, where we talked about COVID as well. And we had over 350 people registered and it got a massive amount of media traction. We wouldn't even have been able to fit 350 people physically. We did an event on the Green Deal um, with the European Parliament and the European Commission and tying in colleagues in France. And we had over 1,500 people looking at it and the, view, the views are still increasing. So the... I guess the flip side of not being able to do stuff physically is that in the digital virtual world, as I'm sure your listeners uh, and we all know and recognize, you know, you can you can watch back a webinar or listen to a podcast as you're as you're chopping the vegetables for the dinner, you know, so it, give, it gives people a little bit more flexibility and and freedom. But it's a challenge. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I do miss we do miss the physical in, engagements. But it's, I think, you know, we've seen the welcome news on the COVID uh, vaccine and please God that that will, that we can actually believe in that hope, that we can dare to dare to hope with, with some basis and some foundation. Yeah, like let, let me ask you then about, let me just ask you about the EU's response. And obviously the, the vaccine is, is great news and we see that the, the EU has committed to purchasing 300 million 
doses of that Pfizer vaccine. But there has been some criticism, particularly in the early days of the EU's response, and maybe there wasn't a what felt like camaraderie among countries. It does seem like the EU have made a better effort at um, union, <laughs> the European Union, um, in its response to COVID. But just what, what's your impression of it and both past, present and, and future of their response? Well, nobody could dispute the fact that uh, the EU was very slow in getting out of the blocks at the start. Um, so it's a little bit, I always say to people, the EU, it's a little bit, uh, it's a bit, a little bit like a marathon runner, not a sprint. And with, unfortunately, with a crisis of the scale of the corona, coronavirus and the global pandemic nature that it was, um, very hard for the EU and all its complexity to, to, to respond as a sprinter, which is what I think, you know, we all as, 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 as citizens wanted it to do. But equally, the EU is only as strong as what the member states want and allow, right? So what we saw, which was really disappointing, um, was a very uncoordinated uh, response at the start, understandable as it is, of member states going their own way, right? So I think, I think as 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 it evolved, um, uh, you know, and once once thing once the frenetic franticness and the and the the of the start of the the pandemic uh, abated somewhat um, after a couple of weeks we saw a more coordinated and more structured response and the eu recognizing through the provisions of funding and you know through coming together uh literally that as a as a collective we it can't you know the virus respects no borders it can't be defeated by member states acting unilaterally and and uh you know, plowing their own furrow. So that was that was welcome to see. I think as we have seen, and it was something that I mentioned in the Oireachtas, there has been a huge demand right across uh, citizens, right across the member states in terms of the COVID response, saying that 54% believes that public health should be a spending priority for the EU budget. Um, and that the most recent Cantor poll in October, an absolute majority of Europeans continue to call for that larger EU budget to fight COVID, give give the institutions up 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 uh, equip them with more funding for research for coordination. You know, we saw the EU uh, group together to to uh, to procure in mass bulk um, PPE equipment, introduce measures as we've seen only uh, this week. I think with the traffic light system for travel. So it's it's been you know it's been great and I suppose um, as a result of that you know it, it reacted slowly at the start and I think we saw it get into its stride as as it has evolved and that is interesting that is interestingly what we have seen borne out in polls across the different member states where people feel that. Uh, you know the response to the EU by the EU at the start was a little bit uh, was a little bit uncertain was a little bit uh, not not coherent, but that has improved thankfully as it's gone on. One of your programs, um, the Future of Europe, which I, I think you under you started to undertake in twenty eighteen, going around the country and talking to Irish citizens about Ireland's place in the EU and the future of that place. 
in light of COVID, and I talked to uh, Agari Sabaka on this podcast from the European Centre of Disease Control, and they talked about increased funding for research. Um, but she also talked about, you know, there needs to be more cooperation among member states in terms of healthcare and in terms of, you know, provision of ICU beds. You know, Germany has, say, a certain percentage of ICU beds. Ireland is way lower down in, on that scale. How in terms of the feedback you would have got on the future of europe program from people from citizens do you think that now if you went and did it again you would get different feedback and is do you think it's important to do that absolutely it reinforces as we've seen paul the challenges of the challenges and the opportunities and the importance of maintaining ongoing conversation debate and dialogue with people on our relationship with Europe and listening and listening to the feedback and citizens concerns and queries a, a very a very big, quick example was at at the start I was really surprised we've been tracking and measuring Irish EU sentiment going back to 2013 when Ireland held the EU presidency and we've commissioned Red Sea to carry out these annual independent polls random selection um, and we have basically one of the topics we look at is security and defense and that has evolved and changed would you believe as time has gone on whereas irish people i think are recognizing the geopolitical complexities of security and defense issues like cybercrime terrorism that that has seen people in ireland fully respecting and supporting uh, and understandably maintaining the importance of our neutrality and of our peacekeeping, but also looking to, to see, well, actually Ireland maybe should be part of increased security and defence cooperation at a new level. So that's been really interesting. And that's something that we have seen and track as part of our future of Europe engagement. And in terms of the, the future of Europe uh, dialogues and conversations, looking at a number of the different topics, I, I think certainly Brexit saw an increased legislation, increased focus, sorry, on, on Brexit, on preparedness, on Ireland's place in Europe. And we have seen the level of support for Ireland remaining a part of the EU, like 84%. Last year, it was 93%. You know, so there's a really strong level of engagement of support, but we can't take it for granted. And we have to tease out and explore what the concerns and what the views of Irish people are and make sure that they're fed back into our own parliamentarians, to our own government, to our own leaders, but also at an EU institutional level. Because if we don't have a role and a say in shaping and influencing the form of what type of European Union we're in, then we've, we've got to be at the table and we've got to make sure that we're having our say. And that's what our role here in European Movement Ireland is. We want, to, we want to listen to what people in Ireland have to say, what they think on our relationship with the EU and how we do that in a post-COVID, sadly a post-Brexit post -Brexit Europe. Um, it's going to be more important than ever and we can't afford to take our foot off the pedal and let others uh, do that for us. We have to be more aggressive, um, um, quite frankly, and we have to step up to the plate and I think there's an opportunity and equally an onus on us to do that. Okay, well, listen, that's great. Um... Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Very interesting insight into kind of European movement Ireland, but also I'm not sure everyone is aware that there is such an organization and that this organization is is talking to Irish citizens about their place in Europe. I wish you the best of luck with the with your work going forward. Thanks a million, Paul. Great to chat. Thanks for the opportunity.
that's it. More episodes coming soon. Thanks to Noel for being my guest on COVID-19 and the EU. For more info on European Movement Ireland, check out europeanmovement.ie. Be sure to subscribe to the series on nearcast.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 and the EU is produced with the support of the Communicate in Europe initiative.